And we have started a new sermon series. We started last week in the book of Romans. Uh, and we are calling this the gospel of God, which Paul, of course, says there in the very first verse. He is a servant of God by appointment of God to serve the Lord Jesus Christ by proclaiming the gospel of God. And we saw last week that the message of that gospel is that Christ has come in the flesh as the king, fulfilling the promise that was there would be a king in the line of David who would come and rule his people in righteousness for eternity. And Jesus is that king, and he is also the eternal son of God, who is God himself. And yet he, being one person with two natures, came so that he might save us to be his people, so that the nations might come to the obedience of faith that is following him for the sake of God's name, so that all nations might glorify him. And so Paul continues this morning as he gets into his message of thanksgiving to the Roman church in Romans 8 through 15. If you want to follow along, you'll see that text uh, in page 8 of your worship folder. This is God's word. He says, First I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Let us pray. Father in heaven, I do ask that you would now work in our hearts through your spirit, attend the proclamation of your word so that it might bear fruit in all of our lives to the praise of the glory of your grace. We ask this. Amen. You know, what we communicate with other people, the words we say are, we know this, are often a reflection of who we are and what we believe. In fact, Jesus told us that out of the abundance of the heart, a person's mouth speaks. So the heart is the the center of a person, and it affects what they say, what we communicate. You see, our worldviews, what we believe, ideas, they're formative. Ideas are never neutral or passive, but they are active and they are influential. What we believe shapes us. What we think What we truly believe makes us into who we are and how we live our lives and how we relate to other people. 
ideas are so powerful that they can change whole societies and cultures and nations and institutions and individuals. Now the Apostle Paul's life, we know, was one that was shaped by the gospel. After all, he was set apart by God, as we saw last week in the opening greeting of this letter to the Roman church. He was set apart by God to proclaim that gospel. He is an apostle, a servant of Christ Jesus. God's mission is his mission. And that mission, of course, is to bring about that obedience of faith for Christ's name among all nations. The gospel then shapes these very words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that Paul writes as he pens this letter. But why should we care about how Paul communicated to the Romans, how the gospel shaped him? Well, it is because of this. A life that is shaped by God's gospel is a life that will be more fruitful, more meaningful, more purposeful, and more satisfying than a life shaped by any other idea or worldview or belief system that exists. Because it is God's perfect and holy truth. In other words, a life shaped by the gospel is a life that is lived in such a way that, that God originally designed for people to live. That is in union with Him, knowing Him and enjoying all that He is both now and forever and ever. You see, we're going to be shaped by something that we believe. Some idea, some philosophy, some system of thought. And most of us, we are going to shape others by the things that we believe because they affect us. But if that belief system, if those ideas, if that philosophy is crooked and bent and twisted... We will be bent and crooked and twisted because that is what sin does to us. It shapes us and it influences those and affects those around us with whom we relate. But if we are shaped by something that is true and pure and righteous and holy, then we will be conformed to the truth and righteousness and holiness of God. In other words, we will be made acceptable in God's sight. Because God is perfectly holy and just. He is truth. And He can only dwell with a people who are conformed to that truth. And it is only through Jesus that we are conformed to that truth. And so we should care about what Paul writes and how he writes these words, even in this word of thanksgiving. He shows us how the gospel shapes us, not just as people, but how the gospel shapes this world. In fact, the first thing we see is that the gospel influences, it actually shapes cities. Paul begins to set his agenda for writing this letter to the Romans here in verse 8 with this word of thanksgiving. And he often gives these words of thanksgiving in his letter. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. 
So as he's thinking about these Romans, people he's never met, he gives thanks to God through Jesus Christ. And notice he isn't thanking the Romans. He isn't saying, I'm so thankful because of something you have done. But he is thankful for what God has done in them. He is thankful that God has given them the gift of faith. And we mentioned last week that Paul did not plant this church in Rome. He had never been there. Eventually he did make it there, and we see his desire to be there with them, even in these words. But he had never been there when he wrote this. And nor was that church in Rome planted by some other apostle. In fact, we don't know who planted it, who started it. We don't know their name, who they were, when this band of believers sprung up in the city of Rome. But you see, none of that really matters. Because what matters is that God in His mercy and His providence, He works salvation amongst the people of the city of Rome. He called them out of the darkness of their sins and into the kingdom of light, His light, through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Though the grace of God penetrated into the pagan center of the world at that time with the truth of the gospel. And that is an amazing thing. That is a shaping, a making thing that God does in his creative power. You see, Rome at the time of the writing of this letter was arguably the most influential city in the world, at least the Western world. I mean, Rome at the time of this writing was the, the seat of the, the emperor. It, it reflected the, the art and the culture and the power and the influence of the entire Roman Empire. And like many great cities, it of course was full of all sorts of ideas and philosophies and systems of belief. And it was also full of much paganism. I mean, like the Greeks before them, the Romans worshipped a pantheon of deities other than the one true God who created heaven and earth. And when you think about it, cities like Rome, and really any city, seems like a rather unlikely place for the gospel to take root, for a church to begin and to flourish and to exist. And yet God purposed to bring about the obedience of faith amongst all nations, including Rome, for his name's sake. And so that means that cities like Rome are going to see the light of the gospel. God will bring people to faith in Jesus in every city of this earth. And it is this reality that Paul sees in the existence of the Roman church that spurs him to give thanksgiving to God. See, Paul's thoughts were shaped by the gospel to thank God for the faith which sprung up amongst the Roman people. He is thankful that the gospel of God was accomplishing what God had purposed, a kingdom for his name made up of redeemed sinners in every part of the world. And so in the Romans, in their church, He sees the power of God at work in the world. He sees that God is doing what he promised to do, to have a people for his name. And so speaking hyperbolically, he says that their faith is proclaimed throughout the world. Paul isn't the only one who notices it. Others do as well. 
He's saying, listen, Romans, this people know what God is doing. They have heard of your faith. People throughout the empire are noticing that there are believers in the city of Rome. Who would have thought? Who would have thought that a church would have started in this city? That people were worshiping Christ in the city of Seven Hills. The center of cultural, political, and military power has been conquered by Jesus, the King of Kings. That was a remarkable thing. Right there amongst all that pagan influence was the truth of the gospel. A lighthouse shining forth the name of Jesus. In Psalm 2, David describes the nations of the earth as raging and plotting against the Lord. He writes, The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, Let us burst their bonds asunder and cast away their cords from us. You see, the thing with great nations, great cities like Rome or London or Paris or New York, Detroit or even Ann Arbor, is that by nature, the idea, the system of thought and belief that influences them by human nature is one of rebellion against God. One that rages against the Creator that says, let us cast aside His bonds. We will not be bound by the law of God. We will create a law unto ourselves, for we will be gods unto ourselves. And it is that rebellion that lies within the heart of all people from the moment they are born. As we'll see later in Romans 1, we, apart from God's grace working in our lives, are unrighteous. And in that unrighteousness, we suppress, we trample down God's truth. We don't want to be conformed by the righteousness of God to be shaped by Christ through his gospel. And so cities like Rome and cities like Ann Arbor are full of unrighteous people who are bent and crooked and twisted and unshapely because they have not been conformed to the gospel of Christ. But it is the gospel that changes that. It changes people. It brings them into the light of the truth. The Roman believers, Paul understood, were no longer shaped by the ideas of fallen sinful men. For in coming to faith in Jesus, they were now shaped by his righteousness. And the empire of Rome is being invaded and changed by the empire of Jesus Christ. That's what the gospel does. It shapes cities. It remakes the world. It brings people out of darkness of sin and into the kingdom of God's light. And for that, Paul is thankful. Because he sees the very gates of hell crumbling to dust before the grace of God. As believers, as followers of Jesus, we don't change this world through politics or armies or earthly mights. We do it through the simple, ordinary proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And how does it do that? It does that as it shapes us. You see, if we are going to fulfill our mission 
as a church, to proclaim the gospel, to be a people for God's name. We must conform our lives and allow God's grace to mold us in Christ to shape how we think, how we pray, and what we desire. And we see that in Paul's life. In fact, the first thing we see here is that his prayers are shaped by the gospel. In verses 9 through 10, he says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. The shorter catechism asks the question, what is prayer? And it answers it like this. It says, prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. Now, Paul understood what prayer was and what it looks like when it is shaped by the gospel. We see that here as he writes. In fact, he calls upon God to be a witness to his prayers, which is so fitting because he understands that that prayer is an act of, of coming before God's very presence to praise him and who ask Him to intercede in our lives and the lives of others, to confess that we have sinned, and to claim the promises of deliverance that is ours in Christ. That's what gospel-shaped praying looks like. You see it in Paul's prayer. Because it is the gospel that actually opens the very door for us to pray. The fact that we can pray preaches to us the grace of forgiveness and the reconciliation that is ours in Jesus as we are reconciled back to God our Father. Because we know that sin, it separates us from God. There is no reason that God ought to hear our prayers. But Jesus is our mediator, opens the door so that we can come directly into the presence of God and lift up our hearts in prayer to him. And so Paul prays saying, God is my witness. He hears my prayers as I serve God in my spirit and the gospel of the Son. But not only does the gospel make prayer possible, it also shapes our spirits, our our spirit of how we pray, our attitude, our posture as we come before the Lord. It shapes it into one of humility. Paul says his praying to God is a service to God. And that, that word translated, I serve, is from the same family of words that we get our word liturgy. And in the New Testament, it always speaks of some form of religious service, or in other words, worship, devotion to God. So the gospel shapes our prayers into a worshipful 
experience as we praise the Lord, as we acknowledge that He is all-powerful and sovereign in this world, and we humble ourselves then from our lofty spirits that we like to, to cling to so easily, and we lay them aside in repentance, and it brings us to the place where we belong at the foot of God's holy throne. You see, when we pray, we're acknowledging that we are completely dependent upon God as our creator to intercede on our behalf. We're recognizing that he is the only one who can act to bring about his will in this world. But it's not just our attitude or our posture towards God in prayer that is shaped by the gospel. It is also our attitude, our our posture towards other people. Paul says that when he prays, he says, I mention you praying that I might succeed in coming to you. He is praying for other people. He's interceding for these Roman believers, people whom he had never met because he'd never been to Rome. And asking that the Lord would enable him to come to them. He's praying on their behalf. And all throughout the Bible we see that. We see God's people praying for the sake of others. Whether it's prayers of deliverance by prophets for the sake of the nation of Israel. To Jesus himself praying for his disciples as his crucifixion approached. Prayer is offered up by God's people for people flowing from hearts of compassion for others. Compassion that comes when one knows the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew Henry wrote, One of the greatest kindnesses we can do for our friends, and sometimes the only kindness that is in the power of our hands is by prayer to recommend them to the loving kindness of God. I mean, you've all been there, haven't you? You have a friend or a family member or a co-worker or someone you know, a neighbor, and you learn they are going through some great tragedy. They are suffering in ways that you cannot comprehend. And you sit there hearing their story, seeing their tears, and you wonder... What do I say? I don't know what to do. How can I minister to them in this moment? How can I speak the truth that is God's peace and Christ to them? Sometimes the only thing you can do is pray. But that is enough. That is enough. God uses that loving kindness of prayer for others to work in their hearts. And what a blessing it is just to let someone you know who is going through a difficult time that you are praying for them. Praying for others is a great blessing of the Christian life. It's a way that we can help and serve those when we have no other recourse. And not only that, our intercession before the throne of God for each other as his church, strengthens our unity. It builds us up. Matthew Henry also said that we are likely to have the most comfort in those friends that we pray for the most. The gospel creates this unity between God's people and that unity is strengthened when we pray for one another. And that's why it is so good on Sunday, on the Lord's Day, when we gather to pray together. 
Sometimes out loud because it builds us up. It strengthens our faith together. But not only does the gospel shape the attitude we have in prayer, it also shapes the manner in which we pray. Notice the language Paul uses here as he describes his praying. He says things like, I pray without ceasing or make mention of you without ceasing in my prayers always. He's describing persistence, determination, regular prayer. You can never pray too much. Our Heavenly Father never tires of hearing the cries of His children. For those cries are a form of worship, demonstrating our dependence upon Him to intercede on our behalf. And when we pray often, God ministers His grace in our hearts and lives. And it's for that reason that we should say that prayer, like preaching and like the administration of the Lord's table and and baptism, is a means of grace. It's a, a way that God communicates the grace of His gospel to us. That He preaches His mercy and goodness and truth in Christ to us as we pray. The Uh, Confession of Faith explains it like this. It says the grace of faith is whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts and it is ordinary lot wrought by the ministry of the Word by which also and by the administration of the sacraments and prayer it is increased and strengthened. And so when we pray... We do so on the basis of God's promises to us in the gospel. And when we do that, we're preaching the gospel to ourselves. We're building up and strengthening our faith in Christ. It's the promise of God that is active and direct in a very personal way in your life. That's what praying is. We're always in need of God's grace. We always need to be encouraged and strengthened and built up in our faith. And so we are always in need of prayer, persistent prayer, consistent prayer. You see, the gospel isn't something that you just assent to in your mind, though you do assent to God's truth. But it is also something that you experience as you come to him overwhelmed by His mercy and His love, and pour out your heart in pray. So the gospel does shape the way we pray. It gives you the power to pray by opening heaven's door. It shapes your attitude towards God and towards others as you come humbly to Him. And it shapes your relationship with others as you intercede for them. And it shapes your reliance upon God's grace. The gospel shapes how you pray. It certainly did for Paul. But finally, we see in this text that it wasn't just Paul's praying that was shaped by the gospel. For the gospel shapes our desires as well. The things that we long for. In fact, we see two desires of Paul in this text. Paul desired two things. First, he says in verse 11, that he longs to see the Romans personally. And second, in verse 15, he says he desires to preach the gospel in Rome as he has in other parts of this world. And both of these desires 
align with God's desires for this world. So let's take the first one. Paul wants to go to Rome. He has this desire to be with God's people there, to see them, to to meet the Roman church personally, face to face, to worship with them in person. Now, he hadn't been able to do so before, as he says, because he was providentially hindered. For whatever reason, he wasn't able to go. But he longs to go to be with them. And why is that? Because God has designed us as his people to be a real community. To have our faith together with other people. Particularly with those who are fellow citizens of his kingdom. Paul longed for the fellowship of the saints that he would know as he worshipped with them and interacted with them. And we know this, that we live in such an isolated world today. We are so connected through all of our means of technology, and yet we are so isolated and we are more individualized, I fear, than at any other time in history. Our social interactions seem to be dominated by the virtual. We spend more time on social media than we do with people in real life. And so clicking on things like liking things on Facebook or Instagram or TikTok or leaving comments on someone's photo, that is now considered normal, ordinary conversation. Not seeing them in the flesh face to face. But you see, living in this virtual world is not how God designed us as humans. It's not how he created us. He created us to flourish and to grow as we interact in flesh and blood with other people. And that is why watching a worship service online is never a substitute for the normal and ordinary fellowship of the saints. And Paul explains why that is. He says in verses 11 and 12, I long to see you. Why? That I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Do you see what he said there? He says, I want to be with you so I can impart, so I can share with you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. What spiritual gift? He elaborates, he says, I desire to be with you so that we would be, and this is the spiritual gift, mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. The spiritual gift he's talking about is the fellowship of faith. Being with God's people, especially that is expressed in worship together. It is the interaction with the gospel through worship which builds us up, which helps us to continue on in the truth of the gospel. You see, we need each other. I, as your pastor, I need you as God's people. We need each other. That is why we gather every week on the Lord's Day. God uses the simple, ordinary interactions of His people to to build their faith as we worship together. You need that, and I need that. You see, it encourages me when I hear you singing, when I fear 
My faith will fail. Christ will hold me fast. And when the tempter would prevail, He would hold me fast. Because I fear that as well. And it is so good to hear you acknowledging that Christ will hold you. That He will not let you go. It strengthens my faith when we confess our sins together knowing that God hears us and forgives. And there is no sweeter meal than the one we share at this table in the presence of Christ spiritually as we take the Lord's table together, resting in Christ's benefits. You see, there are people today who claim they love Jesus, but they don't like His church. They claim, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. I, 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 I follow Him. But I will never be part of His church. The problem is, when you look at the Gospel and the way it works, God redeems a people for His name. Yes, He saves individuals, but He saves them to be part of His people. The church is Christ's body, we see in the Scriptures. Christ is its head. And you cannot have a head severed from the body. That would be a lifeless body. So to remove oneself from Christ's church is also to remove oneself, to to reject Christ in a way. Trying to go alone in the faith will only lead to a stagnant and a dying faith. We need to encourage one another. Even the Apostle Paul longed for the encouragement of being in fellowship and worship with God's people. That's what he desired. And that's what God desires as well. After all, what's the primary promise of God's covenant of grace? I will be a God to my people and they will be my people. I will have a people for my name. God brings people together to strengthen our faith as we worship Him together. Paul's second desire in closing that is shaped by the gospel was to preach the gospel in Rome. You see this in verse 15. And in the preceding two verses, he he gives us the reason why that is, why he wanted to go there and preach the gospel. He says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers. I have often intended to come to you, but thus far been prevented. In order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. For I am under obligation. I am under a debt both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. See, Paul wanted to see a harvest of the gospel of new believers in Rome. He wanted to see the church built up through people who came to faith in Christ. He wanted to continue to see God work that obedience of the faith amongst all nations for the sake of His name. And he says, I'm under obligation. I have this debt upon me to do this. To proclaim the gospel both to Greeks and barbarians. And what he means there is people of every culture, of every ethnicity. In the Greco-Roman world, a Greek wasn't someone who was necessarily ethnically a person from the area of Greece. 
But it was a person who was uh, Hellenized, who spoke the Greek language, who understood Greek art and music. In other words, these were the cultured people. These were the, the elites of their society. And anyone that was unfamiliar with Greek culture or perhaps did not speak Greek would have been called a barbarian, the uncultured, the backwoods people. But Paul says, look, the gospel is for everybody, both the Greeks and the barbarians. I'm going to proclaim it to everybody, both the wise and the foolish. They all need to hear it because the gospel is for all people. That's the point he's getting at. It is the gospel that brings all kind of people together, despite the divisions of race and class and wealth. So men, women, children, poor, rich, White and black, Gentile and Jew, the gospel reaches all. It cuts through all the divisions that we create as people. Those walls we like to build, God tears them down through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in doing that, He shapes the world. He shapes the world by making a people for His name. His grace cuts away all the sinful, selfish ideas that we like to cling to and that cause us to be so isolated and fractured. That's how God shaped cities like Rome as He built a church there. And we know that the Gospel spread even from Paul's day, from nation to nation, changing the lives of millions upon millions of people, bringing them back into fellowship with their Creator. And so by right around 300 AD, the Christian faith had conquered the Roman Empire. People far and wide, Greek and barbarian, wise and foolish, had been brought into God's kingdom. And we can look back upon history and see God work in the same way in different places, different times, again and again and again. From the Great Awakening in colonial America to revivals in Africa and Asia, God shapes the world by making a people for His name, by fulfilling His promise of grace through the Gospel. But I wonder sometimes that we here in America, in the West, if we forget If we've forgotten that, if we forget that God actually is shaping this world, that he is fulfilling his promises, because we look at what is happening, and I know I do this, we look at what is happening in this world, and we think, boy, as the church, we're pretty weak. We're losing. In fact, I... You may have read this past week that by 2070, Christians are supposed to be a minority group in the United States. And you hear those things and you wonder, boy, how, how, what are we supposed to do? We feel like we've been pushed back on our heels against this overwhelming tide of unrighteousness and sin and evil that is dominating the world in which we live. I mean, is God really shaping the world? Is The gospel of Christ really taking root. Is the kingdom really growing? Well, what happened in Rome happen again? Yes, it will. And yes, it is. Because it starts with us. 
as God in his mercy through his gospel shapes us, shaping our desires, conforming them to his desires, shaping our prayers as he wants us to pray. As we walk in the obedience of faith for his name's sake. You see, the mission of the church has not failed, nor will it fail, because God cannot fail. And so as we read Paul's words of thanksgiving to the Roman church, we ought to be filled with thanksgiving as well, because God is still shaping the world. There are churches in Ann Arbor, Michigan, that believe the gospel of Jesus Christ and hold it out to the world to see, saying, this is the way of salvation. And so let us embrace that and give thanks that God is at work even in those dark places, proclaiming the gospel of light. Let us give thanks that God is shaping this world for his glory and for his honor. And one day, what he is building, that kingdom, will be complete as Jesus our King returns. And we will see that final form in all of its glory, pointing to the greatness of our God forever and ever. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again for your word and for the truth that it gives us. And we ask now that you would continue to build us up and to strengthen us, even as we would celebrate this table, so that we might be shaped by Christ, shaped by your gospel, shaped by your grace, the praise of your glory forever and ever. In Jesus' name, amen.